True crime friends, welcome back to True Crime and Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, I'm sorry. I hope it gets better for you. Even though technically now we are at the end of the week. Um, I think that now Friday is going to be the new home for True Crime and Academia. Woohoo! Uh, finally, I figured out kind of like with my schedule how everything would work. And I think this is just going to be the best for that. So welcome to True Crime and Academia's new home on Friday. <laughs> I have a really interesting case for you guys. We're also going a bit younger. Um, we're out of college and into high school for this episode. So without any further ado... Let's get into it. On October 4th, 1996, Captain William Foley of the New York State Police received a personal phone call from his friend, Ron Bulduck. Ron and his wife were out of state on vacation, and after receiving a call from the school that his daughter and her friend hadn't shown up or answered any calls, he had hoped that Captain Foley could look into it because... Quite frankly, he was afraid that the state police would wait too long to act on his report. Captain Foley sent an investigator to the house where the girls were last seen. And it wasn't too long after before he reported back. It wasn't good. The girls were gone, and based off of the disheveled state of the bathroom, he suspected foul play. Less than a week later, the police came across body parts scattered nearby counties belonging to the 16-year-old girls. Jennifer Bulldock and Sarah Hodgney. Jennifer Lynn Bulduck was born on July 21, 1980 to Ron and Cheryl Bulduck. Jen was a tall girl with blonde hair who was known for her strength. As a cheerleader for the Dryden High School cheerleading team, she was a base. So for those of you who don't know, the base is one of either one of two people or one person who hold up the flyers. And they usually do this by holding like their feet in a certain way. So that way they can, the flyer, the person in the air, they can either throw them up easily into the air for them to do a trick or a flip or whatever, or to just hold them balanced. So, like, you have to be pretty strong to do that. Now, being a cheerleader at Dryden was literally like being a celebrity. This was kind of a small town, and everyone in town knew who these cheerleaders were, and little girls looked up to them. I am sure that the competition to get on this team was intense and spots were coveted. So obviously, Jennifer was extremely good if she was able to get on the team. Jennifer was described as pretty, intelligent, and lovable. She was a varsity track star and a champion baton twirler. She worked part-time at the Purple Lion Ice Cream Shop and volunteered at Cortland Memorial Hospital. Jennifer had hopes to work one day in the medical field. Sarah Ann Hodgney was born on September 5, 1980, to Mr. and Mrs. Hodgney. I did try to find their names, um, but it was just impossible. 
And to me, that kind of seems like maybe they wanted to stay as anonymous as possible. So, you know, I get it. But like Jen, Sarah was also a cheerleader, a flyer, to be exact. And again, clearly, this is another extremely talented girl. And she must have been like pretty limber and whatnot, because being a flyer is quite difficult. I mean, you think that you're just getting lifted up into the air and everything's fine, but you also have to balance yourself up there. You know, usually they're doing some sort of moves or tricks or things like that. So it can be pretty difficult. Sarah also was on the varsity track team and she worked part time at Clark's Food Mart, which just so happened to be right across the street from the Purple Lion ice cream shop. She volunteered by tutoring children in the special education program, and she hoped one day to become a physical therapist. I swear, I don't know how these girls did it. <laughs> like, And I feel like thinking back, like maybe sort of, kind of, I can understand, even though it just feels so foreign to me now to like, you know, because, oh my gosh, like they're doing so much. Like I'm assuming they have cheer practice after school, most likely, and then depending on when track what season of track they do they probably have that at some point too and then they have their part-time jobs and they're volunteering I mean it's a lot I mean I'm exhausted just saying all of that (laughs) yeah they're doing it but like I said I feel like as a teenager like it's crazy to remember how much energy you (laughs) had from back then and all of the things you did now Jennifer and Sarah had actually been friends since childhood The two were in Girl Scouts together and Pitan twirling lessons. They became friends quickly as kids and maintained that relationship into their teen years. Together, they also helped coach Dryden's youth cheerleading squad. At 16 years old, they had just got their licenses and they were enjoying this newfound freedom that they had. Some people described the girls as responsible, good girls who were mature for their ages. Some also went as far to say if you had a daughter, you hoped that they would be like Jennifer or Sarah. But they weren't only just extremely popular because they were pretty and cheerleaders. They were also kind and caring to everyone. Like they were just really nice. Like they didn't need to be or they just weren't these stuck up cheerleaders that you see in all the movies and, you know, maybe even have personal experience with yourself. They weren't like that. They were kind. They cared about people. They, you know, were nice to everyone. So, you know, they got along with a lot of people. And like I said, they weren't just popular because of their cheerleader status or their looks. They were popular because people actually liked them. Now, I want to point out that some of my sources for this episode made some comments and released a statement from a male student, like a fellow male student of theirs, and it just made me uncomfortable. I'm not going to say what they were because it's just not how one should talk about or put that kind of imagery out of 16-year-old teenage girls. And I'm not going to lie. I was really disappointed by this lack of morals and ethics of these reporters and authors and the publishing companies themselves for even allowing these stories to run with that kind of language. And what annoyed me the most is that, like, as a writer myself, like, I could just tell, I'm like, they're trying to be, like, sneaky about this. (laughs) And that just, like, made my skin crawl. But anyway, if you look at those sources, just 
just beware that that's what you're in for. On Thursday, October 3rd, 1996, Jennifer and Sarah had a sleepover at the Hodgney home. Sarah's parents were also on vacation, and Jen was going to stay with her to keep her company. It was also said that another guy friend of theirs came over and stayed the night because, you know, they he wanted them to feel safe, essentially. You know, they're two girls. They're 16. They're alone in the home for the first time, maybe, you know, at least for an extended amount of time. Like, and even though it's kind of like exciting, especially at that age, because it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I have the whole house to myself, you know kind of getting a glimpse as to what's to come with college and things like that you know but they would again these were responsible girls it's not like they were having parties or anything like that they just you know wanted to have this one guy friend over to help them feel safe and you know Jen wanted to stay with Sarah so that she wouldn't be alone so you know the next morning their male friend left around 7 a.m to go to school and I guess he just assumed that he would see the girls there It never crossed anyone's minds that the girls wouldn't show up for school that day and subsequently that night because there was a football game. Everyone said that they had hoped that the girls would show up with some crazy story about whatever happened that kept them from school and that they would apologize and all would be forgiven. But the next day, the Baldocks and the Hodgneys received a phone call from the high school stating that their daughters had not shown up. Now, you could say that, you know, they decided to play hooky and enjoy themselves in the house. But again, that's not who they were. It didn't fit their each of their characters. So it's extremely unusual. And like I said, there was a football game that night, but not just any football game. It was the homecoming game, which obviously we all know that is a huge deal. And like most schools, you know, if you don't attend school, you can't participate in this case cheer or, you know, whatever activity it is that event you're involved in that takes place after school you know both sets of parents tried to get in touch with their daughters but they were unsuccessful that night ron bulldog reached out to a friend of his captain william foley of the new york state police foley actually wasn't home at the time of this phone call his wife actually answered when the phone call came through foley was actually dropping off his own kids at dryden high school for the game So when he gets home, his wife tells him the situation about Jennifer and Sarah. And, you know, he calls Ron back and talks to him about everything. So Foley agrees to send an officer out to the house. Now, however, this case is a little unusual because instead of sending a uniformed officer like most would do, Foley sent out an investigator. And this was said he did this mostly as a favor to his friend. And the investigator that he sent out was a man by the name of Bill Bean. Now, investigator Bill Bean showed up to the Hodgney house. And even though it was reported that there were no signs of forced entry from the outside, he could see from one of the windows on the inside that there was something wrong. The bathroom was completely disheveled. One of the soap dishes inside of the shower had been broken off. The curtain and the rod that the curtain was hanging on had been pulled down. So immediately he knew something was wrong and he reported back to his captain and explained what he saw. From there, other police officers are dispatched to the scene. Hate your crime, friends. If you're like me, you love personalized merch 
and you love shopping local. So here is one of my favorite local vendors to buy from. It's Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. My friend Mandy makes the most incredible personalized crochet goods and decor for your home. Spooky season is coming up. She has some of the coolest Halloween designs. So go follow her on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. Again, that's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. And place your order with her today. Aside from the signs of struggle in the bathroom, they had also found the girls' cheerleading outfits hanging up. Jennifer's was on a bathroom towel rack, and Sarah's was downstairs on a rack in the basement. Authorities informed the families, and they both immediately headed home from their vacations. When they arrived, it was discovered that the Hodgenese family car, a gray 1992 Chevy Lumina, was missing. Later that night, at around 10, police found the Hodgenese family car. It was in a parking lot for the Cortland Fishing Line Company, seven miles away from the Hodgeny home. Police opened the trunk of the car. The girls were not inside. However, there was evidence that they had been. In the trunk and the rest of the car, investigators discovered blood and other unknown evidence. It stated that this unknown evidence helped investigators to determine that the girls were taken by force and sadly, most likely dead. What disturbed investigators was the fact that some of the blood splatter that they had, that they had seen had these crystal-like impressions, which meant that the killer was wearing gloves. So clearly, if this guy's wearing gloves... That means that it wasn't spur of the moment, that it was most likely premeditated. The car had also been saturated in some type of oil, and police believe that this was done to either destroy or contaminate evidence in the car. The workers at the fishing line company were interviewed by police, and they reported that they saw someone on their lunch break because the cafeteria where they would eat at had a direct view of the parking lot. They stated on Friday afternoon at around 2 p.m., they saw a man wearing yellow elbow-length gloves walking away from the Chevy Lumina down the street. The description the employees gave of this man was that he looked like he was between 40 and 45 years old, he was stocky build with a noticeable gut, and had a receding hairline with some dark hair. He stood between 5'7 and 5'10", and was wearing dark shirt or was wearing a dark shirt and dark pants. The police questioned the Hodgney's neighbors, the Andrews. They noticed that the windows from the upstairs bedroom of the Andrews home faced into the bathroom window at the Hodgney's house. So of course, naturally, they wanted to know if they had seen anything. However, police took special notice of John Andrews, the husband. Because he was just acting very strange and police were immediately suspicious of him. But they, you know, decided that, you know, they didn't have enough evidence to suggest that he did it. So, you know, they would keep him on their radar. But he wasn't officially a suspect at that point. Elsewhere, a call had come in from a cabin in Oslac, New York. 
which is about 40 miles away from McLean, which is where the girls are from, or Dryden, where the girls are from. A call came in that reported that there was a puddle of blood on the floor of this very rustic cabin. Now, the cabin was owned by a man named Bruno Couture and his fiance Anne Ehrlichsbin. I think that's how you pronounce it. You guys know me. I'm tar- terrible with pronouncing names. So anyway, they had actually let their friend Mark Hutchinson stay there. You know, because it was mostly like a hunting cabin. It was, again, very rustic. So it's literally like one room. There's no electricity. Pretty much just fire. No running water. Things like that. So like I said, it's mostly used as like a hunting cabin and kind of like a place for you to store your guns and things like that. So, you know, not very high tech. Now, Mark claimed that when he arrived at the cabin, he saw this puddle on the floor. And again, because no electricity, he didn't know what it was because he couldn't exactly see. When a friend of his followed inside, he shined the flashlight on the puddle And they both agreed that it looked like blood drying. So they called Bruno and Anne to see, you know, what they should do. So both of them immediately are like, all right, we're driving over. We need to see this for ourselves kind of a thing. So they go over to check it out. And they agree with Marcus and his friend that this indeed does look like blood. So they call 911 and a state trooper comes over. Now, the state trooper at first started asking some weird questions. He was like, do you know anyone from McLean? Blah, 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 blah. You know, basically trying to connect dots here. And Anne kind of picked up on that quickly. And it's when that the trooper asks if anyone else had used the cabin recently. Anne remembers that her brother had been there. And this is where Anne starts to get, not nervous, but like, She says later to uh, newspaper outlets that she just had this gut feeling that she knew because the only other person that had been in that cabin sort of recently, or at least who knew where it was, was her brother, John Andrews. Yeah, the neighbor. Now, 31-year-old John Andrews worked as a computer lathe operator. Growing up, Andrew's father was an abusive alcoholic, and in 1985, it was stated that his father was accused of sexually abusing young girls. I don't know. I didn't look into it very much. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily true or not, but even without that piece, I mean, his father being an abusive alcoholic isn't great either. So, and also not surprising as well. But to escape this horrible home life, After high school, he married his high school sweetheart named Patricia, and then he joined the Air Force. Twice while on base in Germany in 1991, John had gotten into trouble for breaking and entering and basically preying on young girls. And in one instance, John broke into a fellow airman's apartment and beat the airman's wife with a barbell. He was convicted of burglary, aggravated assault, and breaking and entering. He served three and a half years at Fort Leavenworth and was dishonorably discharged in 1994. He then moved his family back to Dryden and bought a house. A year later, the Hodgneys move in. Well, actually, technically, they moved back in because at one point the Hodgneys had left their house on this particular street, moved and lived somewhere else, 
and then came back and literally like moved in to another house on that street. Now, at this point, police had had three other persons of interest aside from Andrews. But with all of this evidence stacking up against him, he was becoming suspect number one. Police start searching the area around the cabin and begin to find bloody rags and even worse, body parts. And, you know, it's not like they found every... I hate being so gross about this, but like, you know, they didn't find everything within this one area. In fact... They found body parts over a stretch of several miles in the Chinoga County, which again, I think that's how you pronounce that. Not entirely sure. I'm sorry. This area, though, is a whole 30 miles from Sarah and Jen's hometown. That Monday, police arrest John Andrews at work because, again, they have all this evidence now against him. I'm sure everything was tested and fine, you know, and they realized, you know, he had had links to that. So they arrest him. And while he's mostly uncooperative, John does confess. He stated that he snuck into the house through the garage because it was kind of open. And from there, he cut the phone wires. He then enters the home through the unlocked door going into the kitchen and proceeds to go to Sarah's room. With him, he's carrying a bag of with duct tape, extra yellow gloves, and six Yes, six knives. He comes in contact with Sarah and he immediately overpowers her, ties her up with black zip ties, and puts duct tape over her mouth. And Jen was actually upstairs taking a shower or getting out of the shower while all of this is happening. So he hears her, goes upstairs, but Jen, being as strong as she is, fought back. Hence why there is so much evidence of a struggle in the bathroom, because Jen fought back. But being a much bigger person than Jen, he was able to overpower her as well, just like Sarah. And same thing, tied her up with black zip ties and put duct tape over her mouth. He got both girls into the trunk of the 1992 Chevy Lumina and drove to his sister's cabin. When he arrives at the cabin, he builds a bonfire. And from there, he goes on to sexually assault, torture, kill, and dismember the girls. He stated that he got into the car and threw body parts and bloody clothes out of the window as he drove. On Friday, November 1st, Andrews was indicted on 26 counts of murder, kidnapping, aggravated sexual abuse, auto theft, burglary, and criminal possession of a weapon. The next day, Andrew hung himself in his jail cell with shoelaces. So, that is the end of the case, as you can see. But, of course, as I'm sure you all guessed, memorials were thrown for these girls and the turnout was insane. But, it is just so sad and it is so frustrating to me that this asshole who, you know, did jail for three and a half years. I mean, granted, he was going to do it for life at this point. You know, if he was found guilty. But that he just... Ugh, people taking the easy way out of this type of shit really pisses me off. <laughs> and and I think it's mostly from the fact that, like, you know, I... I don't necessarily support the death penalty. You know, I, I, I think I've said this before, and I understand that there are issues with, you know, taxpayers not wanting to have to 
pay for that. And I completely understand. <sighs> Again, though, <sighs> I just feel like being alone in a cell for the rest of your life, like knowing you're never going to be able to just wake up and go wherever the hell you want is and should be enough of a living hell for someone to have to experience for the rest of their life. And, you know, obviously this asshole deserved it. And the fact that he was able to just skip out on it by hanging himself by shoelaces. But, you know, again, it's just always so frustrating and so sad when two lives are lost or just any life is lost so young like that. I mean, they had everything going for them. They wanted to do so much good in the world. And we won't get to know what kind of impact that would have had because this asshole John Andrews decided to end their lives. And I just want to say that I did look in and police really weren't sure because there wasn't any evidence that he was specifically being creepy or that he was stalking her or anything like that. But they were able to kind of figure out that he had become obsessed with her. And they believe that is part of why he killed them. (laughs) And we don't know if he knew about Jennifer being at the house or not, but... I don't know, given that one of the upstairs bedrooms could look right into that bathroom. I don't, I feel like you know. So disgusting, I hate it. But that is all I have for you this week, my loves. I hope you all enjoy your weekend. Relax, enjoy, recharge, stay healthy, stay safe out there. Please do all the things you need to do. And until next Friday, because that is our new home, I will see you guys later. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to the fall season. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is a public humanities podcast where we interview writers, scholars, performers, and artists. Episodes air on Mondays. I am Andrew Rimby, the executive director I'm so happy to welcome my team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Kimberly Dallas, our editor, and an amazing fall group of interns. Thank you to this team. Please follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Easy to remember. Our Twitter is at Ivory Boiler Room. And we have a whole new design for our Patreon. It is called the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe because you're joining us and eavesdropping on our conversations that are unedited videos of all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes as if you're eavesdropping in a cafe overhearing the conversation. Well, talking about overhearing a conversation, hi, Mary. Hello, Andrew, and hello, everyone. I'm Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime and Academia, a podcast, well, a true crime podcast that is focused mainly on the crimes committed by and to those in the field of academia. Episodes air every Tuesday at noon. You can follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia and on Twitter at TC and Academia because Twitter hates extra characters, as we all know. And as Andrew alluded to earlier, we have a Patreon and True Crime and Academia has exclusive bonus episodes for subscribers. 
as a true crime enthusiast, I don't necessarily like to pigeonhole my true crime interests. So over on the Patreon, I cover some of the more high profile cases not related to academia, such as the murder of JonBenet Ramsey and the case of Casey Anthony. So if you want access to videos like that, go over to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber. Thank you all for joining us. And here's to an amazing fall season. Bye. Bye everyone.